ever wondered if you were alone in the universe? Did we get here by accident? Or are we the creation of an intelligent designer? Welcome to Darwin or Design, focusing on the continuing debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. What does science reveal and what are the experts saying? Darwin or Design, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida. Also sponsored by the Access Research Network. And now your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to Darwin or Design. We're delighted that you joined us today. And of course, we're delighted to be now heard on the FM Frequency Network up there in the Bridge FM in the New York City and northern New Jersey area. And so if you're tuning in there, that's great. And of course, you're tuning in down in Tampa Bay or Central Florida, we welcome you as well. And speaking of welcoming you, we would like to welcome to our program today a guest who has been heard on this uh, same Darwin or Design broadcast before, and that is Dr. David Berlinski. Uh, Dr. Berlinski, of course, uh, has become perhaps better known through the movie Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, and of course has authored a number of books on the history of mathematics, on philosophical issues, uh, issues pertaining to uh, Darwin uh, to some extent, and now he has exploded in the last year and a half with two books which really touch on the issues of science, the existence of a creative being, if you will, uh, the issue of uh, arguments for and against atheism, and now on Darwinism itself with the new book, The Deniable Darwin, a collection of essays that is just being released through Discovery Institute. So uh, we want to just welcome to our program again, Dr. David Belinsky, who is visiting, I believe, in uh, Oberlin, Ohio. Is that correct? That is correct. Very good. And you're uh, lecturing there, I, I assume, this week? I'm lecturing tonight on the first book, The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and its Scientific Pretensions, kind of a different topic than the Darwinism book might suggest. Right. Now, of course, The Devil's Delusion came out originally a little over a year ago in hardback, and of course now it's just been doing very, very well in a new paperback edition. How in the world did you get into this Oberlin area of Ohio? I'm from Ohio myself. That was Stephen Jay Gould's alma mater, if I remember, and is not known for for, let's say, sensitivity to arguments pertaining to the weakness of I, atheism. I know, I know, I know. we got to speak in a very low voice. Okay, okay. I will, we won't go too far into that, but I'm delighted. I have no idea how I got here. All I know is I'm here. Okay, that's great. And, of course, you're going to be speaking, I think, at Ohio University. And uh, let me just make mention that uh, those of you who are in Florida can look forward to the event on Thursday night, January 28th, when not only Dr. David Berlinski, but also Dr. Steve Meyer and the famous um, talk show host Michael Medved will be joining me on the stage here in Tampa Bay. Uh, tell us a little bit about how the um, the book, Dar- excuse me, The Devil's Delusion, your book now out in paperback, how well it's doing and um, some of the excitement about it. How do you feel about the book? Are you happy that it's uh, being oh, received? I am thrilled. You know, it had a very, very difficult birth. It was published originally in hardcover by Crown Forum. And then for unfathomable reasons, the moment it sold out, they declined to invest any further interest in the project. They didn't reprint it. They declined to exercise their paperback rights. I have no idea why. They That's were strange. afraid of making money. <laughs> yeah, something a common came... anxiety among publishers, I gather. Well, wow. Yeah, I was going to say that, especially in the economic decline, it sounds very counterintuitive. I know. I mean, what can you do? These people have a morbid anxiety when it comes to making a profit. But they, they rejected any, any, any further interest in the book, and I was very lucky, very lucky that Basic Books took it up. 
Yeah, terrific publisher. Oh, and, wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. I can't say enough about them. Well, while we're uh, bringing up the fact that our guest today is Dr. David Berlinski. He is a philosopher of mathematics. He is a historian of mathematics. He's a commentator on the plausibility of Darwinism as a working operating assumption in the academic world. And he happens to be also a graduate of um, with a Ph.D. in philosophy from my alma mater, Princeton University, along with many, many teaching uh, posts around the Western world. And it's uh, uh, I think you're still uh, calling Paris your home. Is that correct? I'm calling my uh, I'm calling Paris my home, and I have no plans to change. Okay. Well, we're thankful that you're you know willing to pull away from the beauty of Paris in January to join us uh, for our big event. January. I've noticed the difference between Oberlin and Paris. It's small, subtle differences, but I've noticed. <laughs> well, let's dive right into uh, the top couple of the scientific pretensions of the new atheism, as presented in your book, The Devil's Delusion. What yeah. would you say are a couple of those kind of major glaring points that you would like well, to point out? Good question. And I think um, the best response is kind of an overall, overall general response is, why are these guys claiming so assiduously and at the top of their voices that they have anything interesting to contribute to the discussion? Look, I mean, suppose Julia Child, the French cook, were still alive, and she were talking to us by telephone today, and she said, you know, I've just finished 200 recipes in the French cuisine, and I have a lot to say about the existence of God as a result of my work on recipes. <laughs> well, I think the natural reaction, you know, that's very interesting, Julia, but it's really not that interesting. <laughs> so when some guy who spent his life doing particle physics comes up, like Vic Stenger, for example, a physicist, and mm -hmm. says, you know, I got a lot of conclusions that are drawn directly from my experiences in the sciences. I got to say, well, that's real interesting, Vic, but it's not that interesting. Mm -hmm. So I think the general point is that uh, the scientific community has not really established any claim that is... Um, that merits our, our attention and respect well, with, with, with regard to this issue. But it doesn't, uh, for example, doesn't the most famous book among this cluster of new atheist books that you take on, and of course their authors are your uh, focused, um, your, the object of your scrutiny, doesn't um, Richard Dawkins himself argue that the power of the mutation selection mechanism makes a creator superfluous, except maybe at the very edge of the beginning of the universe. How would you take on his aggressive atheist stance using Darwinian theory as kind of like the prop or the power uh, weapon? Well, I, you know, any man who says, I have no use for God except when he comes in and creates the universe has given away an awful lot of ground. Mm -hmm. I don't think Dawkins would agree with that if he were here with us today. Right. Um, I may be treating his theoretical stance simplistically, but go ahead. Yeah, I don't know. Dawkins is a hard guy to pin down, although he appears to be crystal clear. When you actually push any particular passage or paragraph, it's really hard to know what he would be committed to. But I cannot, uh, I cannot support anyone who uses the Darwinian paradigm as a the sustenance for atheism, because I think that's a mighty, mighty precarious paradigm in which to rest a case. But bear in mind, when Dawkins says, look, look, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Why? Because he cut the ground from under the argument from design, you know, that famous argument that Paley gave. You see a watch, you infer a watchmaker. You see a biological structure, you infer a biological watchmaker. And Dawkins' argument is, that cuts the ground right out from the argument of de from design. And I think the, the appropriate response is, yeah, maybe. Maybe it has some effect there. But certainly our, our reasons to consider the possibility that there exists a deity do not rest simply on one argument. Mm -hmm. Lots of different arguments. There are a cluster of arguments involved. 
And beyond that, there is something even more significant. That is a kind of a natural, instinctive default position of the human heart that this is a serious possibility. Mm-hmm. After all, we come to God, those of us who have, those of us who have not, not primarily because we've sat down with Aquinas or we've read Augustine, but because there's something instinctive that prompts us in that direction. And that's been so for all of human history. The arguments come afterwards. They're arguments of justification. They're arguments of persuasion. They're arguments of rationalization. But I know of no man who ever says, who has ever said to me, I believe in God. I'm willing to commit my soul to the existence of the deity because of six paragraphs from Thomas Aquinas. Not even Aquinas said that. So we have to be very careful. These are deeply, deeply significant arguments intellectually, but they have a, a deep connection to something that is instinctive, something that is primordial in human beings. No point in denying that. Right. We're talking today to Dr. David Berlinski. Uh, He is on a tour right now of the United States, speaking all across uh, our wonderful country. And he's in Ohio now. I I believe he's heading also to Ohio University in the coming days. He, of course, Dr. Berlinski, has become extremely well-known to those million and a half or two million people who saw expelled, no intelligence allowed. But uh, that's far from the start of his fame, fame, having produced an award-winning book, uh, The uh, Tour of the Calculus, in the uh, early to mid-80s, I believe it was, and gone on to produce a, quite a stream of stunning books on science. Scribble, 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 scribble. That's all I do. Well, let me just uh, mention, in case uh, you're joining uh, Darwin or Design just now and uh, enjoying this interview with Dr. Berlinski, we do have an offer through ARN.org. It's called the Berlinski Cluster or the Berlinski Pack. Uh, actually, I, I correct myself, but the, the, the technical word is Berlinski Bundle. It's a nice alliterative name. And it will include the DVD, which is a fantastic uh, interview with Dr. Berlinski. I show it in my classes at Trinity College each year. The students nominate usually at the top two or three videos they've seen of the year. The Deniable Darwin, this collection of essays that was just released uh, through Discovery. And also The Devil's Delusion, just released in paperback. That uh, group, that Berlinski Bundle, usually retail for $70. Now, for only $50, and that includes U.S. shipping. You can get all three items. Just log on to ARN.org and look for the Berlinski Bundle offer right there on the homepage. Dr. Berlinski, we're going to be heading in uh, just a few more directions in about uh, um, just a quick minute break here. Uh, We're going to be talking about Dr. Berlinski's new book, The Deniable Darwin, and also revisiting The Devil's Delusion as well. You're listening to Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host, and I'll be right back. Darwin or Design is brought to you through the sponsorship of the C.S. Lewis Society. Since 1975, the C.S. Lewis Society has sought to empower believers and engage skeptics with biblical truth and evidences for faith, communicating the case for Christ and authentic Christianity to those in the academic world, both students and professors. To learn more about the C.S. Lewis Society and to access articles and resources mentioned during Darwin or Design, log on today to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. Darwin or Design is also sponsored by the Access Research Network, a nonprofit 501c3 organization dedicated to providing accessible information on science, technology, and society, focusing on controversial topics including genetic engineering, euthanasia, computer technology, environmental issues, creation evolution, fetal tissue research, AIDS, and more. ARN is also a virtual clearinghouse for intelligent design information. Learn more at arn.org.
Welcome back to Darwin or Design, focusing on the debate between intelligent design and Darwinism, with your host, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, the program that tackles each week the biggest and most cosmic questions that you can ask. The origin of the universe, was it by blind chance? Was it from nothing or was it from something, specifically from a creator, a designer, an architect? And specifically, we like to approach the questions of the origin of DNA, origin of life, origin of mammals and uh, plants of all kinds and we also tackle the humanity question. You know, where do we come from? Do we have a purpose? And how do you even flesh out the various sides of that question? And we have one of the best and most qualified commentators on these kinds of questions with us today. He is Dr. David Berlinski. As I mentioned earlier, he has a, a Ph.D. from the university that I attended, Princeton University, and uh, studied under some of these luminaries. Princeton has been known through the years as its number one ranking in the, the world. I don't know if this U.S. News and World Report rankings mean much, but I think they have some credibility uh, in the area of philosophy. And, of course, Princeton also known for mathematics and physics. And, of course, Dr. Berlinski is a world-renowned expert in the history of mathematics and mathematical theory. But, uh, Dr. Berlinski, as you've turned your attention through the years in the mid-'80s onward, especially to this topic of neo-Darwinism and what it, what it pretends to say, what it seems mm-hmm. to suggest and, and claim as far as its rock-solid evidential foundation, you really kind of began with a, quite a bang when you wrote the Deniable Darwin essay in the commentary magazine just a, just a hair over 10 years ago. Would you recollect how that came about? Because, you know, the commentary, the magazine commentary, a high-quality journal of information, but especially a comment on today's issues, I believe is, has been run by the American Jewish Committee. That's right. And so uh, how did you get the invitation? How did you work it out? And what are some of your recollections of this explosive entree, your entree, yeah, into this field? It, it is a wonderful story. You know, one of these days, I'd love to write up an account of the whole story as, as, from my side, mm-hmm. as I understand it. Sure. I had published a piece in commentary uh, two years before. So it was sort of a general piece about the sciences, uh, the soul of man under physics. Mm-hmm. And uh, Neil Cazadoy, the editor, and I were sort of sitting together and wondering where to go next. Neil wanted to broaden commentary. You know, commentary had been well-known for political and social commentary, philosophical issues. It had never touched the sciences at all. And he said it's about time that commentary moved into the 20th century, a little late, but about time anyway. And uh, he wanted to have a much more substantial presence within the scientific community. He wanted to be recognized. He wanted commentary to be recognized as a source of polemics, controversy, interesting things. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, the time is right. Let's, uh, Let's take a look at Darwin. And uh, he perked up his ears because he also recognized the time was right. There was a, kind of a muttering, a thesaurus uh, of complaints about Darwin's theory because it, it was being promoted so relentlessly. Mm-hmm. And Neil said, I think very justifiably, that whenever you see a, a scientific theory promoted to within an inch of its life, you know there's something going on, some system of anxieties attaching to the theory. And I said, perfect. And... Um, I wrote the essay, and Neil liked it very much. He did some very light editing, remarkably light. And we were of two minds. On the one hand, we thought, A, it would disappear without a trace. No one would pay any attention. Or B, it would cause a kind of explosion. And it was B, it caused a kind of mini-explosion in the New York publishing world and in the scientific world generally because they were flooded with letters. Mm -hmm. The letters were pretty much 50-50. Half of the respondents thought I was an imbecile and a lunatic, <laughs> and the other half 
wrote in saying, I've been waiting 30 years to see commentary published an essay like that. So it was very gratifying in terms of the commotion it caused. And they devoted an entire issue in September. My essay was published in June, and in September they devoted not an entire issue, but about three-fourths of an issue, to all the letters, the criticisms, and my response. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, both Neil and I thought, terrific. We've done everything we really wanted to do. Over the long term, I think the pressure put on commentary was very significant. Mm-hmm. The pressure not to publish me, not to, not to continue in this direction. Right. Some people argued that... Um, Commentary was essentially a political journal, especially interested in Jewish affairs and the relationship between the United States and Israel. That was its mission, and anything further was bound to attract unpleasant attention to the magazine, attention that was not justified in terms of its fundamental purpose. And other people argued, and this was by far the dominant voice, that uh, Neil had opened commentary to a crackpot and a lunatic. Mm. And uh, this this was bound to be bad news for the scientific community. It was certainly going to be bad news for commentary and cut it out. Mm. There's no room in the academic world for any kind of dissent. And over the long term, you know, I published a great many other pieces in commentary after the the, um, Deniable Darwin. Yeah, I've forgotten the title of my own essay. That's okay. Uh, And uh, increasingly, the pressure was brought to bear on on, uh, the editors and the powers that be. And Neil was recently, I don't know what word to use, he found other employment, let's mm-hmm. put it that way. There's mm-hmm. a new editor, Josh Pedoritz, the son of the founder, Norman Pedoritz. And I certainly don't have a home at Commentary anymore, and for 10 years I did. Mm-hmm. So things have changed, and the, the conclusions one might draw from the changes, I will leave to others to draw. I've drawn my own conclusions, but I don't think it's appropriate for me to say anything about it. Right. Well, of course, if you've just joined us a moment ago, we're talking to Dr. David Berlinski. Dr. Berlinski is extremely well-known in the world of the history of mathematics, I wrote a number of books in that area, and perhaps we can pry out a comment or two on those topics along the side here. But he's most famously produced within the last year or so this marvelous book called The Devil's Delusion, which is a response to the new atheism, especially in the area of science, the scientific pretensions, the claims that science or scientific evidence or scientific arguments render null and void any uh, belief in, in a higher being and in a creator. That's design. exactly right. Yeah. So beautiful, uh, Tracy. Well, thank you. Uh, and of course, Dr. Belinsky's uh, work has been, uh, of course, uh, of course, well known through uh, the DVD, the very, very well done interview. Um, matter of fact, I, I want to just, uh, Dr. Belinsky, I'm going to embarrass you for a moment. I hope you don't mind me. Uh, saying something here. Uh, I'm going to read an opening in my chapter 11 of my book, Darwin Strikes Back, Defending Uh defending the Science of Intelligent Design. And I don't even, I'm not sure you have a copy of this book. I think we may have chatted about it way way back. But I'm talking about here, Unexpected Allies in chapter 11. And it says, um, this theme brings to mind an incorrigible, unpredictable, practically indescribable intellectual an unrelenting scourge of Darwinism who burst onto the scene quite unexpectedly in the summer of 1996. And I'm referring to your deniable Darwin uh, commentary in Commentary Magazine. I'm referring to the Jewish intellectual David Berlinski, and I talk about your Princeton background. Uh, This cosmopolitan cosmopolitan thinker and gifted wordsmith does not exactly fit the religious profile of uh, Barbara Forrest's um, uh, would-be ID theocrats. 
and I'd go in and talk about uh, your comments in this area. Uh, Bar- uh, Barbara Forrest, of course, being the author, co-author of a book, very, very anti, harshly anti-ID yeah, book. Yeah, I, kn- I know her work. Creation, <laughs> Creationism's Trojan Horse. The, um, the work that you've done so far in this area really does deal with both philosophy and scientific issues. Uh, if you were to offer to, let's say, a young person, a high school student tuned in, either in, in Florida or New York, New Jersey area, uh, what would you say as a word of advice to them as they approach this vast and somewhat complicated and confusing area of evaluating the case for or, and the case against neo-Darwinism? What are some, some advice, some points of advice you might toss out just I off the top that- of your head? That's a very good question, and it's not, in my case, entirely a hypothetical question because I've been in exactly that position, um, corresponding with young people aged 18 or 22, and some of them come from severely, severely uh, religious backgrounds. And uh, they hit Princeton, they hit, hit Yale or Harvard, and they are completely discombobulated. Mm. And so this is, and, and, the, and the other side goes as well. People encounter religious longings in themselves and their scientific education simply leaves them unequipped even to make sense of them. Um, there is, there is such, a, such a thing as a soul spontaneously on fire with a desire to know God, and if, it's, if this kind of person comes from a scientific background, they're in trouble. They really are. Mm. I think the most important, most important piece of advice is keep your brain functioning. <laughs> Do not accept more than you must accept in order to master your coursework, to master the books that you've been assigned to read, but reserve the right, even though it may be uncomfortable in a classroom, to raise skeptical questions. And also promise yourself that to the best extent, to the extent that's humanly possible, you will allow your mind to develop naturally in the directions that it finds persuasive. Hmm. And this advice goes even to the extent that someone is prepared to say, you know, Dr. Berlinski, Dave, there's vastly more in Darwin's theory that you ever suggested to me, and uh, my commitments from now on are going to be in favor of Darwin's theory. I'm going to work my best to develop that theory because I think it is essentially true. That's fine, too. That's fine, too. Mm-hmm. What I want is, what I would hope, want is too strong a word, what I would hope is that uh, the lock, the cramp of mental muscles that seems to occur whenever these issues are discussed uh, in part, that cramp is caused by fear, in part by orthodoxy, in part by anxiety. That's not the important thing. The important thing is finding the truth, making the best sense that we can of the truth as we see it. And that's really all. That, that's the best advice I can give. I'm not going to tell anyone, come into a university setting prepared to dismiss Darwin. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to come into a university setting telling anyone, embrace Darwinian theory. That's also ridiculous. Right. The best thing I can do is open your mind. Well, we're talking. On your feet. Thank you so much for those those profound points. And we're going to be right back uh, after a quick break with Dr. David Berlinski. We are offering through ARN.org the Berlinski Bundle, which includes two books that he has just brought out: the Deniable Darwin Collection of uh, the collection of essays, and the Devil's Delusion, which we've been talking about on this broadcast, as well as this fantastic DVD interview called The Incorrigible. Dr. Berlinski, all those three items, normally $70, will now be available through ARN.org at $50, and that includes shipping, so you want to log on to ARN and take, uh, take a quick look at that. We'll be right back in just a minute or so. I'm Tom Woodward, and you're listening to Darwin or Design.
Welcome back to Darwin or Design, focusing on the debate between intelligent design and Darwinism with your host, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, where we have an incredibly special guest on the phone today from Mid-America, from my stomping ground up in Ohio. And he is Dr. David Berlinski. And Dr. Berlinski is a gentleman that uh, I got to really know in 1996 at a very important conference in um, L.A. where it was actually called uh, Mere Creation. And it was the kickoff, you might call it the official or semi-official kickoff conference for the design movement where 180 or so scholars, most of them with earned PhDs, gathered at a campus in the L.A. area. And um, one of the principals, one of the intellectual founders of intelligent design, Charles Thaxton, was uh, hospitalized in Eastern Europe. And at the last minute, we were able to bring in a a tremendous uh, scholar and author and thinker and commentator, Dr. David Berlinski. Dr. Berlinski is with us on the phone today, as I said, and he has been just helping us to understand the nooks and crannies of this really fascinating debate, which seems to get bigger day by day. Dr. Berlinski, as you you and I were chatting about some of the, the historical moments of intelligent design, it occurred to me that you were in on some of the very early proto-skeptical conversations happening in Europe, and sp- specifically in Paris of all places, with a gentleman that most people may not have heard of, but you and I, of course, uh, know of. You yeah. and personally, Mark Schutz. Mark, is that how you is it? Schutzenberger, right? Schutzenberger. Yeah. Schutzenberger. Would you tell us a little bit about who he was uh, sure, and, and how he to. how he I impacted you? Because most people <laughs> do not realize the European roots of skepticism of neo-Darwinian theory. It's an important point, Tom, and I'm very glad you you brought it up. You have no idea how far back I go. That's because I'm an old guy now. <laughs> oh, you're young compared to most of no, us. No, no, no. <laughs> Heading for, for uh, 70. So okay. that, that gives me a, a real mm-hmm. backward look. <laughs> 1970, 71, I forgot exactly the dates. I was, I was doing a little something for the New York Times, and they said, go up and interview Noam Chomsky. This was the Chomsky who wasn't writing about politics, but about linguistics. And I went up there to Cambridge. Chomsky was very welcoming. And we started talking about Darwin. And at once we agreed the theory is completely inadequate. I don't know whether Chomsky today would endorse that view, but in 1970 he was saying flat out, impossible to attach a great deal of credibility to that theory. And then he turned to me and said, you know, you're a young guy. If you're really interested, the guy to talk to is Marco Schutzenberger in Paris. And he did more. He wrote a letter to Marco introducing me and encouraged me to get in touch with him. And then Marco wrote a wonderful letter back. I just published a book with the MIT Press, and I sent it to him, and he liked the book. A masterpiece. These are his words of critical analysis. And we got together, and that began, that began a, a lifelong friendship. Then in 1979, 1980, he arranged for me to be in Paris for a year. And we devoted ourselves to writing a book about the neo-Darwinian theory of evolution. We worked for a whole year on this stuff. Hmm. And Marco made me, made me understand, because I was so culturally illiterate, that all these questions had antecedents in French cultural life life of uh, European society. And he, he pointed out, for example, that molecular biology was only 20 years old. And there was still plenty of room for discussion and dissent because, after all, Darwin was an Anglo-Saxon, so there was some inherent plausibility to the denial, denial of Darwinian theory among French intellectuals. And uh, we never finished the book because of circumstances beyond our control, but we talked endlessly about these subjects. So even before Phil Johnson, even before Charles Thaxton, I had this this source in Paris, very good mathematician, but also a doctor, a medical doctor, and also someone with laboratory experience in molecular biology. 
never make the mistake he urged of simplifying what is really at issue. Well, we're talking to Dr. Uh, David Berlinski today on the phone. He's uh, speaking at a number of uh, universities and other venues in Colorado and Ohio, Ohio and elsewhere. He'll be here at their um, WTBN area in our main station area in Tampa Bay. He'll be speaking at the um, a la carte pavilion on Thursday night, January 28th. Please do mark that on your calendar if you're in Tampa Bay. And if you're listening on the Bridge FM network of frequencies up in New York and New Jersey, I mean, what an ideal time to come to Florida to hear Dr. Belinsky and Michael Medved and Steve Meyer, the founder of Intelligent Design Movement, as well as uh, little old moi here. And yeah, Tampa. what an ideal time for Dr. Berlinski to head <laughs> yes, off to the service. Yes, from the, uh, the, from the somewhat graying uh, time of the Parisian year. Bleak, bleak, bleak. <laughs> bleak. Okay, we'll get you out of that bleakness quickly. And I think there will be a whole string of other venues that we're working on, another one that uh, we'll be able to announce probably next week. Speaking of announcements, I just want to mention that uh, as you hear this broadcast, the very uh, in the New York area, the very next day, Sunday, uh, November the 8th, I will be speaking from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m., giving an intelligent design conference, three 45-minute talks with um, video clips and all kinds of stuff, uh, really exciting stuff. I'm going to bring my protein models. And so I'll be speaking at the Brooklyn Baptist Church there in Brooklyn, New York, New York City. So if you're listening to this in New, New Jersey, New York City, a metro area, just plan on uh, giving a call to the people, and it's uh, brooklynbaptist.org. You can check in with the uh, Don LaMaster is the uh, pastor, and he can answer any of your questions as I give a science uh, survey of the evidence uh, relevant to the topic of the Darwin design controversy. Uh, Dr. Berlinski, uh, we want to uh, mention that your book, which, of course, The Deniable Darwin just came out, uh, is, um, is a kind of a compilation of a number of essays. And I remember when you were in Czech Republic, uh, our organization, the C.S. Lewis Society, That's right. played a role behind the scenes helping to set up that fantastic, amazing conference there in Prague. Uh, you were talking on RNA quite a bit at that point and perhaps since. Give us a nutshell on why the scenario of life beginning with a snippet, the half ladder, the molecular half ladder of RNA compared to the full ladder of DNA, why that origin of life from supposedly RNA snippets swimming around in some context yeah, is yeah. maybe not as strong as a theory as it's cracked up to be. Can you make a well, comment on sure. that? Well, it, sure. It's a wonderfully rich subject. There's a lot, a lot of research taking place right now. But when I was in Prague at your invitation, I was talking about these issues because I had just published another paper and commentary entitled The Origins of Life. Mm -hmm. And I had spent, oh, 15 months going through all of uh, the research papers and, and really trying to master the whole field. Classic problems of the origin of life say from 1950, 1955 to 1980, all of them, all, all of the experimental efforts ran into a brick wall because mm. there was simply no way to account for the emergence of complexity given the amount of time available to living organisms, in particular, no way really to even to grasp this peculiar chicken and egg scenario where the DNA performs the executive functions in the cell. It gives instructions. It's the boss. And the proteins... Uh, perform all the industrial activities. They arrange things, they coordinate the cell, they make things. Uh, but the proteins depend on the DNA, and the DNA, in order to express its commands, depends on, uh, depends on the enzymes. And it is very difficult to figure out which came first hmm. in any kind of evolutionary scenario. It can't be the D DNA, because DNA without the enzymes doesn't work, and it can't be the enzymes, because the enzymes without DNA won't work. 
1980-1981, the hypothesis was offered that RNA, RNA, which is very similar to DNA, single-stranded, not double-stranded, but performs many of the same functions, might, just might, have a double nature. It might contain the information necessary to run the cell, but it might be capable of certain kinds of enzymatic activities. Thus, the ribozyme was introduced to the biological world. And this is actually a stunning, a beautiful idea, that the problem of the chicken and the egg could be dissolved by saying simply the chicken is the egg. In the form, of the, no in, the, difference. in the form of the ribozyme. In the form of the ribozyme. Mm-hmm. And um, that was 1980, 1981. Uh, there's been a great deal of research, and in point of fact, uh, 2009, there was some very striking evidence that a ribozyme could be so engineered as to affect a few elementary enzymatic activities. All of this is very interesting, and the research should be continued. It does support the RNA world scenario. But bear in mind, it faces exactly the same problems so many origins of life experiments face, that in order to get anything done, the guy running the experiment must stick his meaty fist right into the experiment control and coordinate all the outcomes. When you ask, how would these things work? How would a ribozyme work in the prebiotic world, just transforming itself into a biotic world without a laboratory intervention? Then we come up blank. Mm -hmm. We have no scenario. If you look at the famous papers, uh, by page three, they begin to list all all the enzymes and chemical reactants that had to be added to the experiment in order to get anything to work. Mm-hmm. This is a very, striking, uh, a very striking observation. The same thing is true with all synthetic attempts to reproduce the pathway leading to sugar in the prebiotic world. Mm. And there's a great Swiss chemist named Eschenmerzer who's done spectacular work on the derivation of sugar under prebiotic conditions. But the one thing that is absolutely necessary is the chemist himself organizing, arranging, manipulating, making sure the right outcomes occur. And the conclusion that I draw, and when I say I draw, I mean to stress that mine is very much a minority point right. of view, is that we've reached the limit that uh, these are all, in one way or another, and speaking metaphorically now, uphill reactions. They will not occur spontaneously. Well, let me jump in right there, since we're talking about a pretty heavy-duty subject. We're going to uh, back... Yeah, I know. Uh, this is really rich, and I want to follow up with a couple of... Uh, Pretty meaty questions on my part. Uh, you're listening to Darwin or Design and an amazing interview with Dr. David Berlinski. I'm Tom Woodward. We'll be right back. Darwin or Design is brought to you through the sponsorship of the C.S. Lewis Society. Since 1975, the C.S. Lewis Society has sought to empower believers and engage skeptics with biblical truth and evidences for faith. Communicating the case for Christ and authentic Christianity to those in the academic world, both students and professors. To learn more about the C.S. Lewis Society and to access articles and resources mentioned during Darwin or Design, log on today to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. Darwin or Design is also sponsored by the Access Research Network, a nonprofit 501c3 organization dedicated to providing accessible information on science, technology, and society, focusing on controversial topics including genetic engineering, euthanasia, computer technology, environmental issues, creation evolution, fetal tissue research, AIDS, and more. ARN is also a virtual clearinghouse for intelligent design information. Learn more at arn.org.
Welcome back to Darwin or Design, focusing on the debate between intelligent design and Darwinism with your host, Dr. Tom Woodward. We're so delighted you decided to join us today on Darwin or Design. And whether you're listening up there in the New York, New Jersey metro area or here in what we might call the Tampa Bay metro area. I don't know if I've ever used that description. Uh, the thriving Bill metropolis Carl. that is yeah. Tampa Bay. Yes. No, Bill Carl. Now, I need to rope you in because I know that you enjoy Dr. Berlinski. I, I think do. just about as much as I do. And so I'm going to give you, I'll, I'll give you a minute to think, but I'm going to ask you to think of a question. Uh, but maybe I'll give you a couple minutes oh, to think. I'm you put, know what? I've already, here's the thing. As I listen to today's program, I don't even want to ask a question because it will be a stupid question. Oh, well, I doubt but, that. But, but I, I will say this. I would like to say this. Okay. Uh, one of the reasons that I love listening to Dr. Berlinski is he cuts through uh, kind of the, the raw science of it and gets to the questions that are larger both uh, than the, the – that are larger than the science. So, Absolutely. Anyway, Absolutely. I'm done. I'm done. No, and I'm going to – on your behalf, I'm going to think of a Bill Carlish question, okay? Because you always hit cut the chase and I have – Do you prefer Musée d'Orsay or the Louvre? <laughs> Am I on with you guys? Yes, yes. you are on. We're taping. Oh, you should have said something. I was talking my <laughs> Well, this is, we're having far too much fun. So moving yeah. along. So what was your question? Do I prefer one museum to the other? Uh, Musée d'Orsay or the Louvre? I love the Louvre. The trouble is it's so hard to get in these days. The place is mobbed all really? the time. Really? Maybe, Jen, yeah. A tremendous number of people standing wow. in line all the time. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, one of the pleasures of living in Paris is you go to the big museums and then you discover there are endless number of small museums. Yes. Mm-hmm. Devoted to odd subjects, you know, the history of the cufflink. <laughs> Never heard of that. Well, from the Monchette. Yeah, and and they're beautiful. <laughs> well, in case you haven't uh, picked up already, we're interviewing uh, one of my favorite uh, scientific authorities on topics related to science, mathematics, history of of, of the above, and specifically the neo-Darwinian dominant paradigm uh, that uh, is really shaking at its foundations or quivering with a, a challenge from um, scientists who do not believe that it's all that it's cracked up to be and that have ideas of, of design theory and detecting design. Uh, Dr. David Berlinski is um, author of two key books. One is just literally white hot, right off the press. It's called The Deniable Darwin, and The Deniable Darwin being, of course, the most famous essay uh, in Commentary magazine that David Berlinski produced, and it has a well over a dozen articles written by Dr. Berlinski on this very, very topic that we've been dealing with on this uh, program for over three years now. We want to ask a couple key questions in this area, and uh, Dr. Belinsky, one of them I would like to just uh, bring back in from our discussion perhaps a year ago or so. That is the origin of the universe itself with all of its fine-tuning aspects, uh, all the parameters, the con- quantities and constants set just right. Uh, the, the other side often will use the, the kind of escape route, that, well, maybe we just happen to be sitting in one of these spectacularly or maybe the only spectacularly well-structured, well-laid-out um, you know, universe, and there's maybe trillions or an infinite number of invisible universes out there beyond ours, which are not the, the lucky lottery ticket winner. In other words, those randomly produced universes uh, were, were fizzles. They were failures. They were yeah. flops. Would you uh, just uh, give us a kind of an understanding of why that theory came into existence and why it really, in your view, I would assume, doesn't hold as much water as uh, some might say? Well, surely we should both begin by, by saying, sure, it's possible. It's possible. It's possible I might get a call from Stockholm next year, too. 
<laughs> but if you're, if you're a betting man, I wouldn't put much money that way. Mm-hmm. What's called the landscape of the multiverse really has two sources in intellectual history. One comes from particle physics. You know, the last unalloyed triumph of particle physics was the standard model, which was finished in 1973 or 1974. And the remaining problem, the great unsolved problem, is how to reconcile this world, which is based in quantum theory, with general relativity, which is not. And um, an immense amount of intellectual effort has gone into the rapprochement. And in the 1980s, 1990s, physicists came up with string theory. I won't get into the technical details of string theory because I kind of suspect your readers would snooze off. (laughs) But suffice it to say, string theory has a very uncomfortable result. It seems to countenance roughly 10 to the 500th possible solutions of its equations, and these correspond to countlessly, countlessly many possible universes, exactly the landscape you were just talking about in your little introduction. No one, no one is really happy about this state of affairs because physics from its inception has had the hope of describing the one, the true, the only universe. Hmm. Laws of nature are true for one and only one universe. But the second, the second um, origin of this notion that we live in a just a froth of possible universes, is a, a deep reluctance to confront the implications of standard hot Big Bang cosmology. Mm-hmm. Or Big Bang cosmology says, look, we go back 15 billion years and the, the universe seems to have erupted into existence out of nothingness. That's our best guess. That's what the evidence all says. That's kind of uncomfortable, uncomfortable for a great many scientists because after all, if you say the universe came into being out of nothing, is what the evidence kind of suggests. Where possibly has a similar doctrine been recorded? Well, as every one of the physicists participating in the discovery of the Big Bang recognized at once, this is an account that is completely consistent with Genesis. In fact, it's consistent with the creation stories told throughout the ancient Middle East, that the universe is not infinite in its temporal extent, but finite. Don't forget, from the time of Aristotle to the 20th century, Almost every, every serious scientist thought the contrary, thought that the universe must be infinite in its extent. The discovery, it was actually an extended discovery beginning in the 1930s and coming to a culmination in 1963 when Penzias and Wilson discovered the microwave background re- radiation mm-hmm. using their equipment on a rooftop and eliminated pigeon droppings as the alternative explanation, <laughs> that in fact the universe had a beginning came as a tremendous shock to the community of scientists. There's no point in, in denying these facts. <laughs> and the idea of a landscape, the idea of resuscitating in some way the steady state theories of cosmology where things were bubbling into existence, but bubbling over all of time, that, is, that plays a role in this notion of a landscape because every scenario of the, uh, the multiverse comes equipped with a mechanism for the creation of new, new universes. Mm-hmm. And if we can point to the cosmos and say, look, there's nothing special about this one. No, no creation event, nothing like that. This universe came into existence 15 billion years ago, but look, they're coming into existence left and right. There's no special call on our attention, no particular resonance with classical accounts of creation. If scientists could do that, they would rest a lot easier. And that's the second motivation for the landscape. The first comes directly from string theory and particle physics. The second comes from this deep desire to evade any conceivable 
uh, theological implication of Big Bang cosmology. So we see two powerful forces at work. But both forces represent a kind of uh, moral bankruptcy. I say moral bankruptcy in the special sense in which moral questions are relevant to the sciences. Because no theory that has indefinitely many solutions can possibly satisfy our deepest longings for a physical theory. It's not well posed, to use a term of art. And uh, no body of doctrine that is purposefully conceived to evade any kind of theological commitment can seem consistent or plausible to us over the long term. There's too much resistance to this idea because it seems too obvious as a maneuver. Mm. It's just a form of evasion. Mm. So I'm very skeptical that these ideas will last, they will go anywhere. And uh, what is it, 2009? They haven't gone anywhere. They came into, into being sometime in the mid-1990s. Nobody is particularly happy with them. They, ha they have no conceivable means of empirical verification. Uh, they are languishing on the vine, and I think that's just what they should be doing, languishing. We're talking today to Dr. David Berlinski, and he's commenting, of course, on the multiverse theory, a theory which uh, proposes in what I have described to my students as a bit of bloated runaway ontology. The view that, I love that one, yeah, bloated yeah. runaway ontology. <laughs> well, maybe it's for, <laughs> subconsciously inspired by you, Dr. Berlinski. Dr. Berlinski, of course, author of The Deniable Darwin, which just came off the press. Uh, the Discovery Press, and uh, with it, coupled with it, we would like to uh, offer to you in a special bundle this fantastic book, The Devil's Delusion, an, an account of, uh, or a response, we might say, to the scientific pretensions of uh, Richard Dawkins and the rest of the new atheists and all of their claims that, uh, well, science or the discoveries of science renders an, um, uh, God belief or some kind of theistic belief unintelligible, unsupported. And he responds to that, uh, even though he d does not have any particular, um, let's say, a religious um, point of view uh, to push. Is, is that a fair estimation? I'm, I'm... It's fairer than fair. Okay. The uh, the work of Dr. Berlinski in this deniable Darwin, if I can go ahead and recall, uh, Bill Carl here, my technical producer, will probably laugh at this. But um, I actually remember uh, when I read David Berlinski's book. On the way over to Dallas, uh, I was speaking out there a number of places, and on the way back, I finished it, and I was laughing through every chapter. Oh, uh, good. I was, uh, I was hooting. I was roaring. I mean, I was, of course, putting a gag on myself as I didn't want to bother the people wedged in next to me on the plane. So as I got off the plane, I developed a theory. I call this my heretical Berlinski theory of the origin of the universe and the, the culmination of the universe. And my theory was the entire history of the universe was orchestrated to lead to this one consummating shimmering point that David Berlinski would write, The Devil's Delusion. And so that theory of the universe, of course, being heretical from a standard Christian theology point of view, I immediately revoked it as quickly as I put it on the table. <laughs> you better. <laughs> <laughs> but it was that IPS pure pleasure of an intellectual uh, instruction and, and a bit of I felt the same way. If I could interrupt you, I'm sorry for that. I felt the same way writing it. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, you, uh, to avoid uh, uh, inappropriate hubris, withdrew it, I hopefully. As oh, quick, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quick, quick, as, as, as my it. hand hovered over the keyboard. <laughs> Right back to the Big Bang. Well, let's talk about uh, issues pertaining to uh, your visit to Castle Rock. I understand you were there and quite a, yeah. an amazing event there. Do you, see, do you sense uh, things are developing in this whole Darwin design controversy? Oh, of course. And, and, of and, and, course. and what do you sense? What's, what's, I, I'm not asking you to make predictions. I'm not saying go out no, and land. No, I understand. What Let do me you, tell you what I yeah, sense even yeah. before you ask me. Okay. I sense there's a frenzied quality to the other side. 
that astonishes me and that I've never seen before. Are you aware that the website was hacked into repeatedly? I, I had heard that. Mm -hmm. And it's true. I spoke to all the guys. It mm -hmm. was hacked. And there's just no accident by any means. And uh, it made it extremely difficult to publicize the event. Mm -hmm. But within the space of the week, I, uh, space of one week, I'd seen the same thing twice because I don't know whether you're aware what happened in Los Angeles just a few days before the Los Angeles Science Center was supposed to show a documentary and call, uh, entitled Darwin's Dilemma. Mm -hmm. And at the very last minute, they canceled too. They broke their contract. They are obliged to rent their halls to anyone who can pay for them. Wow. And with no explanation, no justification, they just broke the contract, leaving everyone, everyone sputtering. Mm -hmm. So I've seen this with my own eyes twice within the space of one week. I think this does represent a change. There is a quality of anxiety now to the debate that I can't remember. You know, the Discovery Institute guys, they get hate mail. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought when I heard about this is got to be an exaggeration, mm. but it's not. Yep. They posted something on their website uh, from a, a concerned listener who's asking that everyone associated with the Discovery Institute be put in prison for treason. Oh, my goodness. Well, let me just jump in on that uh, somewhat uh, crazy point and let me say, run. Don't walk. Run to your computer to order the Berlinski Bundle. It's uh, the DVD. You will hoot. You will play it a hundred times. The DVD interview... Um, on David Berlinski uh, speaking there on his mind on a number of issues, the incorrigible David Berlinski, along with two incredible books, Deniable Darwin and Devil's Delusion, all three books, normally 70 now $50 at arn.org. Thanks for joining us. And Dr. Berlinski, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. You know that. It's my pleasure. Okay. And uh, we'll be, hopefully see you here, same time, same place, next week on Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host. Until then. <laughs> 